Hey, this is Evan Marquette, dating coach for smart, strong, successful women, your personal trainer for love. Welcome back to the Love You podcast, where you're gonna learn everything you need to know about dating, relationships, sex, and men from a man's point of view. And I'm really excited about today's interview. I can't, uh, I can't uh, spin it any other way. Um, I'm a dating coach who's interested in a lot of subjects, politics and gender, race, business, religion. And sometimes it feels like a trap to have to stick with one narrow subject. And that's why, to me, it's such a blessing that one of my favorite authors wrote a book about love and agreed to talk with me about it today. So if you're anything like me, and uh, I don't assume everybody in my audience is, you're, you, know, you consider yourself a rationalist, you consider yourself into science, you, you may love books that explain how people think like I do. Uh, Freakonomics and The Tipping Point, Predictably Irrational, Thinking Fast and Slow. These are books that are all dog-eared on my bookshelf. But perhaps my favorite author is a guy named Jonah Lehrer, who is like a more scientific Malcolm Gladwell. He takes arcane subject matter and he makes it really easy and accessible. I read his book, How We Decide, in, in like a week. I read his book, Imagine, in a day. And last month, I read Jonah Lehrer's latest book um, called A Book About Love, which is essentially the book I would want to write if I were actually a researcher and not just a dating coach. So I reached out to him through his website. We spent over an hour connecting about all sorts of topics from literature to child raising. And I wanted to try to save something juicy for today's Love You podcast. So without further ado, allow me to formally introduce Jonah Lehrer. Jonah Lehrer is a writer, the author of a book about love, How We Decide, and Proust was a neuroscientist. He graduated from Columbia, studied at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. He's written for The New Yorker, Nature, Wired, The New York Times Magazine, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal. He lives in Los Angeles, California. Welcome to the Love You Podcast, Jonah. Thanks so much for having me, Evan. It's a pleasure to be here. It's uh, it, it's it's genuinely good to, to have you here. Um, I, I, I can't hide my excitement most of the people I've interviewed so far are in very much in my narrow field, dating relationship coaching, dating authors, um, uh, and I, I already knew them. I mean, I, th this is a pretty small universe. And so it feels like an, almost like an exciting get to get a guy who writes about all these other, other subjects who focused his energy for one book on a topic that is universal like love. So what is it that got you interested in writing about love when you could really write about anything? I mean, is there a better subject than love? I, I guess that's the obvious answer. But, but I really, I fell into this book uh, from a very personal question. I, I went through some real career difficulties, made some terrible mistakes in my work. And, and was left wondering, you know, what's holding me together? After you lose a lot of stuff you think you cared about, what's the glue that's keeping you together? And, and you look around and it's the people you love and people who love you back and it's these attachments. And so that got me interested in this very basic mystery of love, which is what the book really tries to investigate, which is that we live in this world full of pleasures that disappear. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the new iPhone 8 or that new German sports car. It's gonna be very exciting for about a day, maybe a week. And then the pleasure is gonna fade away. And that's a psychological law called habituation. It's one of the basic laws of psychology. And long story short, it, it, it means that all these pleasures that we seek out, that they fade away very, very, very fast. And so we spend our lives chasing after the most, most fleeting source of happiness. But then you look at love 
And I think really what defines love is it's this pleasure that doesn't get old. When we say we love something, what we're really saying is that we've found this, this source of meaning, this happiness. And maybe it's another person, maybe it's a god, maybe it's a book, maybe it's, maybe it's a hobby. Whatever it is, we found something that doesn't get old, that we can stick with for years and years and years. And so at this moment of, of total flux and, and what felt like loss in my own life, I looked around and the love remained. And so it was that mystery that really motivated this book, that really got me interested in trying to understand what love is, what is the science of love, what is attachment theory, and what can the science tell us about how love works on the most basic level in everyday life. It's interesting that you lead with love lasts and doesn't fade away. Um, because that is the thing that everybody's looking for that seems to be so very elusive, right? So, so what, are, what are the illusions that people have? Because it's, again, it's very easy for you and I who are happily married to sit here and saying, well, love, you know, most things are evanescent and they, they disappear uh, because of habituation, but love doesn't fade. For a lot of couples, love does fade away. So how do you square those two things, right? I, I, I know it doesn't contradict itself, but but in in if you're single and you've had a hard time finding something that lasts, love actually does fade away. What do you say to that woman? Well, I, I mean, certainly not all loves last forever. Um, so sometimes people can grow apart. Sometimes there are problems in relationships. I mean, divorce is no joke. I mean, we're talking about 40% of marriages, people who commit to spend their lives together still end up divorcing. So love isn't perfect, but, but I think it's, it, it can still last for a lot longer than any other source of happiness, number one. And I was also interested in trying to understand what happens when love goes awry, when love goes wrong, when love doesn't last. What happens to those relationships and what are the differentiating characteristics of a marriage, say, that gets better over time versus one that falls apart you know, in less than a decade. Um, so there's some really interesting science around that. Um, but, but the book also tries to explore, I think, some of the myths with the way we think about love. Some of these are cultural mistakes, um, you know, the classic Romeo and Juliet, Romeo and Juliet era where we confuse what scientists call limerence, which is this intense lusting obsession with, I think, the slower burn of love. And when you read Romeo and Juliet, of course, Shakespeare has filled that play with all sorts of warnings to the young randy teenage lovers which they choose to ignore. I think Shakespeare wasn't necessarily trying to celebrate Romeo and Juliet without complicating it. I think that play is full of complications. But I think that, you know, the Romeo and Juliet mistake, which I guess one can trace all the way back to Plato and the symposium and this notion of finding your missing half, this notion that we're all split before we were born and so the act of seeking out love is finding that one other soul who completes you. Uh, I guess you could call it the symposium mistake, the Plato mistake, or the Jerry, the Jerry Maguire mistake. Um, that I think is also a cultural illusion, this notion that we can only be happy with one other person. I think the science very soundly refutes that. Does it endorse... Um, so there are some cultural myths which have made it much, much harder to find lasting love. Does it endure because people want to believe it? I mean, that, that gets into a whole other question about the nature of belief, but is, there, is it wishful thinking that we think that we will be the exceptions to the laws of habituation? 
Um, I mean, I think these cultural myths endure because they're so romantic, because they're such glorious ideas. This, this notion that one could see someone at a party and then instantly start talking in poetry, and that's love. I mean, you know, that's Romeo and Juliet. Before they exchange a word, they're, they're talking in poetry, they're talking in iambic pentameter. Um, life, of course, is lived in prose, and that's, that's not as fun to watch in a play or in a movie or to sing a song about, but that's, that's the sad reality. I'm not sure it's sad, but that's just the reality. Um, and then I think those myths also make love seem easy, this notion that if you just find your missing piece, the love will be easy. Well, you know, the truth is love is, love is always hard work. That's just what it takes. That's what makes it last. Love doesn't last by dint of some miracle. Love lasts because we make it last. Um, so, so I think those cultural myths, their appeal is, you know, it's obvious. Their appeal is the fact that they make love seem incandescent and easy and effortless when in reality it's the opposite of all those things. So let's, let's sort of build the case that you build in the book instead of glossing it over. Um, because this myth starts with this concept of habituation. And again, it's a word that I, that I had in my vocabulary, but you brought it home so clearly in the book and in, in our previous phone call. You called it the, the the flattening of pleasure. Could you just elucidate so that readers can could understand how this this impacts every aspect of our lives? Sure. I mean, it's a brutally simple thing to describe. You can ask someone to think about the last thing they bought and how happy it made them when they swiped their credit card and walked out of the store carrying it. You know, it, it could be the new iPhone. It could be a new cashmere sweater. It could be a new pair of shoes. And then you ask them, how long did that happiness last? How long was it exciting to touch the shiny glass screen of your new phone or to lace up your new shoes or slip into your new boots or put on that new sweater? And the answer is always the same. The happiness didn't last long. And so then you chase the next new thing. And this is just the way we're wired. And, and there are all sorts of evolutionary reasons we're wired like this. You know, We are wired to be inherently ungrateful, always seeking out a new source of pleasure and that's because if you're too smug and satisfied, you know, you probably won't get enough food, you probably won't try to explore and conquer new things, and so we're designed to be a little bit restless. I think in the modern world, habituation can easily lead us to become miserable, right? Because we have this whole, whole economy wired to sell us new things and rack up credit card debt. You know, these things that promise us happiness, but it's the most evanescent and fleeting form of happiness. Um, and so habituation is, you know, I think re really a large cause of, of why we're miserable because, you know, these, these things we chase, they don't actually make us happy for long. And then you think about, well, what does make us happy? What, what don't we habituate to? And I think that's where you're left with a very short list and love is the top of that list. So when, when people hear this very, I joke about being a reality-based dating coach, when people hear this very reality-based answer, uh, I, I know there's some sort of pushback. Oh, I'm not an iPhone, right? So some, some guy's gonna date me and then I'm gonna, he's, he's gonna get bored of me like an iPhone. Doesn't feel good to hear. No, no, and I think the novelty of Certainly, so, you know, I need to begin by saying, I'm, yes? No, I, I, I just, I, 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 it almost feels transactional, and I don't disagree with the conclusion. I'm trying to talk about the emotions around it that 
I think people like to think that love transcends that, that, that of course I'm different than a new car. <laughs> um, and you're telling us we're, you're not. Well, no, I mean, I'm, people aren't cars, people aren't iPhones, people aren't sweaters. I don't mean to imply that. I just think this notion that novelty, novelty gets old very, very quickly. It gets old so much faster than we think. Um, and so if, you know, if you're chasing novelty, if you think this new thing is going to make you happy, it's not. Um, and you can see these psychologists have, have done these charts where you chart people's passion versus attachment over time. And these are successful couples. These are couples that have been married for decades. And what you find is that the passion begins at a very, very high level. And then it inevitably falls. Mm -hmm. And there's something deeply sad about that, right? You can look at these charts and just say, then what's the point? You know, then, gosh, I'm, I've, I've got to give up that. But what you see rising over time as compensation is attachment, is companionate love. Um, you know, and so I've talked to these psychologists and, and I've said, isn't this, doesn't this make you so sad to just see the inevitable decline of passion? And, you know, you see, you know, 20 years down the road, maybe there's a little bit spike in passion and they renew their vows or go on a second honeymoon. The kids are out of the house. The kids are out of the house. Who knows what happened? And there's a, you know, the passion is rediscovered, but then it fades away again. And, you know, they all kind of say the same thing. Yeah, it's sad, but that's just the way it is. And the consolation is this rise of companionate love, the rise of attachment, this thing that binds us together. So are these, um, are, are, are these opposing forces, chemistry and attachment, or are they somehow complementary? I mean, they're complementary in the sense that if you look at the relationship, say, between attachment, security, and sex, couples that are securely attached, so they've got that strong attachment bond, they share intimacy, they also have sex a lot more. They've got better sex, they have more varied sex. So I think the, the common conception is that there's some inevitable trade-off between intimacy and passion, at least in the bed. Um, and I think the science shows that's not the case. I think what is inevitable, and again, I don't want to pretend this isn't depressing, because this is depressing. What is inevitable is that we will habituate to the novelty of their body. That, that, that passion that grabs us at the start, that isn't going to last forever. And I think when you expect it to last forever, when you ignore the basic law of psychology that it's going gonna, it's gonna to fade away, you're going to be disappointed. I think the key question is what is it replaced by? What does it turn into? What is it transformed into? And if you're, if you're lucky, if you're very, very blessed, the answer is some kind of strong attachment, some kind of companionate relationship. They become your best friend. And you still get to have sex with your best friend, but that initial passion where you just kiss them and, and you see stars and rainbows and the birds sing, that's not going to last for years and years. So how do you... how uh, there's no argument here. It, it echoes what I've been saying for a long time. The question then remains for a listener. How do I know? What's the best way for me to tell if we're going to have something that endures once the passion fades? How? Because I don't want to waste two years of my life blinded by passion. And it's happened to me before. How can I make a better decision up front so that when my... 10 chemistry turns into a six chemistry. 
we still have a, 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 a healthy attachment and a relationship worth preserving. How do I not fall into that trap again? Oh boy, I mean, you begin with the easy questions, huh? Um, I wish there was some secret, some, some five-step program for identifying right away who's worthy of a secure attachment, who's gonna be able to give that to you. I don't think there is. I think it's something that by definition requires time and patience. Um, I mean, I think when you look at secure attachments, the key test um, is often how people react when you're stressed and anxious. So if you wanna understand, is this a secure attachment? Do they display the right kind of attachment behaviors? I think one of the key tells, and this, is, this, this comes from the scientific literature, this comes from Mary Ainsworth's classic test of attachment between mothers and infants, is if you wanna reveal, is this one-year-old child child attached to their mother, what you do is you put them in a room and then, long story short, you have the mother leave the room and you see how the child reacts. And it's a secure attachment, the child gets upset, right? Their, their attachment figure, their parent who keeps them safe, their secure base is just left, where'd they go? And so they get upset. And then you have the mother return. And this is the key reveal. You look at how the child reacts to the return of the mother. Um, can they be soothed? Do they keep crying? Do they push the mother away? In a secure attachment, the child will get upset when the mother leaves, and when the mother comes back, the child will still be a little upset, but can be calmed down by their attachment figure. And what scientists have done is take the same basic paradigm and use it to study adult relationships. So there's a classic study done by research at the University of Minnesota where they have the female partner they expose her to a, they say, we're going to run some experiments on you, and they take her down the hall, and they show her a very scary-looking machine and say, this is the machine, but hold on, it's not quite ready yet. Then they take her back to the room where her partner's waiting, and they surreptitiously observe how she interacts with her partner. Is she willing to share her vulnerability so they can see her blood pressure spiking? Is she willing to tell her partner, oh, I just saw something scary and I'm a little nervous about it. Will you soothe me? Will you make me feel better? And is her partner able to calm her down? And what you find is that in secure relationships, the female is able to share her vulnerabilities with her partner and her partner is able to empathize with them and say, oh, don't worry, I'm sure they're scientists, it'll be okay, they're not gonna hurt you, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that, that is the essence of a secure attachment. Um, I think the larger lesson there is simply we think of romance and we think of successful relationships in terms of the highest of highs, you know, how they make us feel on our best days. But what the science reveals is that the true test of attachment is how they help us get through our hardest days, um, how they help us cope with, you know, the shittiness of life, the, you know, the stress, the angst, the career letdowns, the wounds, the injuries, the emotional hurts. like. Can they help us? Can they help us get up back on our feet? That's the real test of attachment. Um, so if you're looking for a shortcut, um, if you're looking for some kind of tell, and again, this, this isn't some magical solution, but I'd say, it's, you know, I'd say to ask yourself, can this person make me feel better when I'm feeling down? I love that, Jonah. Uh, and it's, a, it's a, an angle I never really uh, considered before. Uh, I usually say don't pay attention to how how you feel on the date uh pay attention to how you feel in between dates right um That's if you're feeling really anxious i don't know if this guy's going to call me i don't know what if, if what he's thinking if he's really inconsistent and you you can't keep a secure baseline uh when he's not in your presence 
then that's not a secure relationship. So it, it sounds like it's sort of dovetailing, but I like the fine point you put on it, um, especially within the context of, of a committed relationship. Uh, any guy can make you feel special, uh, you know, a couple days a week. How, you know, how does he stand by you uh, when, when, you're, when things are rough? That says a lot more about his character and his commitment than uh, the, the high, high of your chemistry. Um, now, just to take a half a step back, because you dive in with all this attachment theory stuff, if we presume that, that a, a, a listener is not familiar with attachment theory, can we just establish what that means? Because we've gone from, okay, chemistry is a temporary illusion. We're, we're, we're looking for successful long-term attachments. That's just, I don't think that's a, that's a term that, that a lay, lay person's term that everybody uses routinely. Sure. So attachment theory is a, I think it's one of the most important psychological theories of the 20th century. And it grew out of a large body of research um, done in British hospitals, British institutions, where uh, tragic stories of children who were institutionalized for everything from tuberculosis to leukemia, and they'd have to spend months in the hospital. At the time, there were very strict visitation policies, so parents could only see their children one day a week. Uh, and, and John Bowlby, who's often cited as the father of attachment theory, would study what happened to these children. Um, who at the age of three were suddenly separated from their attachment figures. And he chronicled the terrible toll that this separation took on these kids. So many would become thieves, many lacked empathy, many would never recover from this sometimes nine month long separation. And so that's, studying these children was what first got him interested in the question of what were these children missing? What is this bond that is so essential to the development of the healthy child? Um, and, and that gave rise to people like Mary Ainsworth, who studied with John Bowlby. She came up with this classic paradigm, the strange situation task that I described briefly before, where you can study the attachment of a one-year-old and their mother in about 10 minutes in a lab just by separating the child from their mother and watching the reunion. Um, and what she found is that you can use this simple task to divide relationships into three basic categories. So you have a secure attachment, then you have two forms of insecure attachment. You have avoidant attachment and anxious attachment. Avoidant attachment is the one-year-old who, when their mother returns, kind of ignores her, wants to punish her, you know, shrugs off her hugs, isn't crying, um, so doesn't get upset when the mother leaves. But if you're, if you got a blood pressure cuff on the child, what you see is that he's really, really anxious on the inside. His blood pressure spiking. He just doesn't know how to show it. He doesn't know how to make himself vulnerable to his mother. So that's avoidant attachment. An anxious attachment is a child who, when the mother leaves, gets, gets very, very upset. And even when the mother comes back, continues to be upset. So isn't suitable even when their attachment figure returns. And a secure attachment, as I described, is a child who gets upset when the mother leaves, but then can be calmed down when the mother returns. And so that's, those are some of the canonical experiments that, that began the idea of attachment theory and that allowed scientists to measure it in these child-parent relationships. Then beginning in the 1980s, researchers realized that, hey, you could use the same basic paradigm to understand adult relationships, adult romantic relationships. And sure enough, they started giving adults questionnaires. And what they found is that adult relationships also broke down into these three basic categories. So you had secure attachments, you had anxious attachments, and avoidant attachments. I think we can all 
imagine friends who fit into these categories. You know, the friend who's always worried that someone's cheating on them or that they're not getting enough love or they always want to be together. That's anxious. An avoidant one is someone who just doesn't know how to be intimate and, and keeps pushing their partner aside. And then there are those who, who are able to have secure attachments. And so this gave rise to this large body of research looking at, well, where did these adult habits come from? And what researchers found is that they're really shaped by our childhood so that people who have secure attachments to their parents as children are much more likely to have secure attachments as adults and so forth. So I talk a lot about that research in the book, um, and I do it through the lens of a few classic longitudinal studies. So that's a fancy word for scientific studies that follow people for years and years. And, and, and I did that because if you're interested, if you begin with this notion of what defines love is love lasts. Love is what never gets old. Uh, then you've got to study it over time. You can't study it in a one-hour experiment in the lab. You've got to study people for years and years and years. And this led me to work like the Grant study. Uh, it's a Harvard longitudinal study that's been tracking uh, men who went to Harvard between 1939 and 1943, and it's been tracking them ever since. Many of the subjects are now in their 90s. Uh, it was led, uh, it's most closely associated with a scientist named George Valent, who I got to spend a lot of time with in the book and um, talk a lot about in the book. And, you know, I think uh, what drew me to the grant study was it, it accidentally became this incredible tribute to attachment theory and the importance of attachment. So the grant study began by studying all the biological markers of these men. So their chest circumference, the size of their skulls, the hanging length of their scrotums, and it assumed that these biological markers, these medical markers, would be the best predictors of achievement, marital success, you know, their rank in the military, and so forth. And what they found 20 years later is that none of these markers mattered at all. Uh, they were all irrelevant. And that's when George Valen took it over, and he started asking these men very personal questions about their childhood, about how they felt about their mother, how they felt about their marriage, how many close friends they had, were they able to share their vulnerabilities with their friends and with their partner. And what he discovered is that these, these factors, these, these emotional factors, the closeness of our relationships and our attachments, that's what really mattered to their lives. That's what kept them alive. So it was one of the best predictors of health and longevity is how happy you were in your marriage, how close you were to your mom and your father, how close you were to your siblings. These close personal relationships, they predicted health, they predicted wealth. They were the single best predictor of achievement in these men's lives, even more than their IQ scores. So how happy you are in your love life, and I'm defining love life there broadly to include all your loving relationships, that matters more to your success in your career than how smart you are. And that's kind of an astonishing finding. It predicts mental illness, it predicts alcoholism. You go down the line and, and it predicts just about everything. It predicts just about everything, which is what led George to say in one of his more famous lines, happiness equals love full stop. Um, so it was studies like that, that that really for me brought attachment theory to life because it wasn't just about studying one-year-olds in a lab or telling the tragic tales of kids who had been separated from their parents, but it was really about how, how when you take a step back and look at the long arc of life, finding those good loving relationships matters more than anything. Um. I, I love that the, the, the quote that love is happiness. Um, it feels like a, something that, that 
would seem to be over, overly simplistic, but, but actually isn't when you, you get right down to it. Um, you mentioned the, uh, the Harvard grant study. Um, were there any other sort of, uh, I, I guess, mainstream uh, modern books that, that impacted your research at all? Uh, presuming someone's not going to go back and, and you know, uh, read the longitudinal study. Is there anything that, uh, that uh, our, our readers, can, uh, in addition to reading a book about love, could, could uh, pick up that would help to inform how you arrived at these conclusions? Um, hmm. it's, a, it's a great question. I, I read a lot of really wonderful books in researching my own. Um, I mean, George Valen's books are actually very accessible. So his last book, Triumphs of Experience, is a great one. I think what makes them so accessible is it's not just a bunch of correlations, but he tells the actual stories of these men. Um, so he's, he's been interviewing these men for, at this point, 40 years. And, and to illustrate the correlations, we'll, we'll tell you their life story. And like all, like all lives, they're amazing stories. Um, so so I, I definitely recommend George Valen's work. Um, I talk in this book a lot about John Gottman's work. I got the chance to interview him and spend time with him. I think he's, he's done a lot of really important studies of long-term relationships and some of the factors that, that allow marriages to be successful. Um, you know, everything from how, how successful couples how successful couples weave a shared narrative and what he calls glorify the struggle. I, I, um, I, so love, I love that and I want you, I, I have it on my, on my sheet here that I wanted to talk about. The concept of telling, telling a positive narrative about your own relationship. Um, just ex, expand on that because it rang true for me and I just, I'd never put it into words before. Yeah, so uh, I mean this, this this also gets back to, I think, one of the core ideas of George Valen's work, which is that, you know, as I said before, shit happens to everyone. Like, when George Valen began studying these men, he, he thought, you know, these are successful Harvard men. If anyone's lived, you know, triumphant lives, it's these guys, right? Like, they're, they're the best and the brightest. And yet, when you start talking to them, you realize, oh my God, everyone's dealt with heartbreak. Everyone's dealt with depression and anxiety. And, and so the good life is not about escaping the bad stuff because that's inescapable. We all make mistakes, you know. We all suffer from the same original sins. We're all a little bit broken. The good life is how you cope, it's how you adapt. And, and then George, then what George found is, well, what, what shapes those adaptations? What allows some people to deal with struggle um, by seeking comfort from a loved one and some seek comfort in vodka? What's the difference? And there his answer was, well, it, what shapes that is your relationship. So those who have secure attachments are better able to adapt in positive ways and, and to move on from their struggles and to become stronger from them. So, so I think that's one of the core themes of George's work that was so resonant with me and I really responded to and absolutely rang true. Um, the specific study you're asking about, about from John Gottman's work was work he did on retrospective memories. So what he did was he brought a lot of couples, several dozen couples, into the lab and asked them to describe the start of their relationship. Um, and what he found was that uh, you know, a lot of couples, 
began in difficult ways. So the start of their relationship was described in chaotic terms. Someone loved someone, someone else more. Families rejected their partners. They had they had tough stories. But the best couples, those couples who were still married years later, they engaged what he called glorifying the struggle, where it wasn't the absence of hard times that made them successful. It was the way they shared this narrative that, oh man, that was really tough, but it made us stronger. And couples are able to engage in this thing he calls glorifying the struggles, were much more likely to stay together. And what he found was that you could use this short list of tools to analyze their memory, to analyze the way they talked about the history of their relationship, and predict with 94% accuracy who was going to get divorced within the first seven years. Um, so it turns out memory is a very powerful predictive tool of the future of a relationship. And in particular, he talks about two things, we-ness, how shared is your memory? You know, some couples, when you read these transcripts, they're always disagreeing about the past. You know, they're always correcting each other, so they score low in this factor called we-ness. Then the other really important factor is what he calls glorifying the struggle, which is every couple's gonna go through tough times. We all get fed up with each other. We all get in each other's nerves. The question is, can we look back on those tough times and say, ah, we're still together and we're better off because of it. The relationship is even stronger because we triumphed over the struggle. I, um, I want you to share uh, as much of your story as you're willing to. Um, uh, briefly, and again, I don't, I don't presume everybody who listens to this knows my whole story, but I didn't know that my wife was the right one uh, for about six months uh, after we got married. And the moment that the penny dropped for me was when we had our first miscarriage and I was with her at a doctor in Beverly Hills while she was getting the DNC procedure, I was holding her hand. And I just realized that, that it was bigger. We created and lost a life and it was just bigger than, than anything I'd experienced before. It was just bigger than, than me and ego and what I thought relationships were about. And uh, something just clicked that day. And for me, when I, uh, relating this to what you just shared, that that was like the beginning of our of our unshakable marriage. Started the day that we had our our miscarriage. Um, was your uh, was your fall the the iron that forged your successful relationship, or was it already in place beforehand? Um. And it's a it's a really it's a really good question. Um, I don't want to give. It almost feels like I'm giving my my professional mistakes too much credit. Um, I think what I can say is that it made me a a much better husband and father. Um, I think in the same way. And first of all, thank you for sharing that story. I hadn't heard that story. It's a it's a very powerful story. Um, I think what I learned from my fall was, was a, you know, the loss came with a clarity. Um, when you lose what you think matters and it turns out you're still standing and something's holding you together, um, 
it, it, it does give you a sense of clarity. You see what actually matters in life. And, and as I said before, it's, it's the people you love and who love you back. And so that, that made me realize that I was taking my wife for granted. Um, she's an absolutely astonishing woman. Um, and, and it made me much more focused on how can, I, how can I be a better husband to her? How can I be a better father to my children? Um, and, and those are lessons, goddamn, I hope I never forget. So I don't want to say that, that in that moment, um, you know, in the, in the difficult months and, and years after my professional mistakes, um, after they came to light and after I lost my job and all the rest, that I somehow instantaneously, you know, became, became a better husband and, and, uh, had some great epiphany, I think it just made me more determined to get better. And, and that's what I've been trying to do ever since. Um, could you, and this is, this is broad and I'm, I'm, I'm fishing here. I'm going away from, from a book about love. Can you tell me about your wife? Uh, sure. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to reveal too much. Um, we we met in college, so we've been together now for 16 years. Uh, we've been married for this is our ninth year of marriage. We have three kids. Um, she's she's just the best person I've ever met. Um, she's my best friend. Uh, she's just an incredible woman. She's an unbelievable mom, um, and she's also a uh, she's a lawyer for kids in the dependency system. So very very stressful and emotionally demanding job. And somehow she does it all, um, and uh, you know she, she's 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 one of those people who, um, after I lost my job, I you know I think one of the one of the consolations was that I got to spend a lot more time with my kids. And before my fall, um, before I lost my job, um, I was I was on the road more than I was home, and I was I was not a very good father. And then all of a sudden, I was at home trying to take care of. My daughter, who was then then about a year and a half, and, and uh, we did not have a secure attachment yet. Um, she was not happy to be stuck with this person who had never really put her to bed before, changed a few diapers, but often put her diaper on backwards. Um, and you know, so so my wife somehow stayed with me through that period, and and has been here ever since, just patiently helping me become better. Um, and uh, you know, and when I when I look back on that very difficult period, um, I, God, I'm just so astonishingly grateful that that she stayed with me and she put up with me. And um, you know, and now when when now when I look back on it, I mean, it is I do use the glorifying the struggle framework to think about it sometimes, just because I can only imagine what I put her through. Um, how difficult that period must have been for her. Um, and, and she certainly gave it to me. I mean, she was so mad at me, but she saved her fury for those days when she knew I could take it. And, and for that, I'll always be uh, just incredibly grateful. And, and uh, you know, all I can say is that I hope my sense of gratitude never goes away. And it's something I, 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 I really nurture and, um, and think about a lot and reflect on a lot. Um, just because it's, it's really important to me. The sense of gratitude I feel to her for 
helping me become a better person, for staying with me. Um, and, and, you know, in many respects, this book, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not the most personal book in the world. There are some personal stories in there, but it's really about the science. But it began, uh, it began as a series of very long, just, I guess they're diary entries. Um, after my fall, after I lost my job and I couldn't sleep, I just started writing and I would write and write and write. And, and what I kept on writing about was our marriage and how important it was to me. And it was those entries that really led me into the subject of love and to, God, this, this thing is holding me together. Um, this, this is what matters most to me and I want to understand a little bit better so I can be a better husband and I can be a better father. And so it was, those very, it was a very, you know, the motives for this book were very selfish. Even if the book leans heavily on the science it was framed by these very personal and selfish questions, which is, this, these people are holding me together. I want to be better for them. I want to be better to them. Um, and so what can the science teach me? Thank you uh, for sharing that. And I, 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 immediately, I immediately want to take the conversation in, in, a, in, a, in another direction to sort of build on it because I, you're sharing something very personal, um, and I don't, I don't feel the need to get into you know what, what happened with your your career. People, if people want to Google that, they may. Um, I'm, I'm totally happy to talk about it. I know, but I, I don't want it to be the focus of of this because uh, this is this is the Love You podcast. This is about <laughs> this is about re- relationships, and and I, I'm I'm very interested in. You say your wife is the best person you've ever met. Um, and you, you know, you get this, the echoes of the James L. Brooks, you know, you make me want to be a better man kind of thing. And every day, and, and, and I have, I have a lot of the same things, uh, the, the things you say about your wife are things that I would say about my wife as well, but I don't think it's that common. Um, and I don't know, uh, I don't know if it was the, the, your nature because you're intellectually curious uh if or if it's your work the same way it's my work but my work constantly informs me to be a a better husband um and and you strive to be it's a it's a a conscious choice uh gratitude effort appreciation uh spirit of generosity uh unconditional love and an unshakable bond what about all the guys who don't have this what are women supposed to do with men who just aren't as conscious as you are for your own reasons? Because you're not the average guy. So I don't disagree with any of your assertions about what, what real love looks like and how you talk about it. Um, but part of my job is not just helping people understand the nature of love and healthy attachment, but rather how to get it. And so you have exhibited an uncommon level of self-awareness, humility, penance for what you've done wrong. And most guys are like, whatever, man. (laughs) Well, look, I can't speak for most guys. I can only speak on behalf of my own experience. And I can speak, uh, you know, as someone who, for years when I was fixated on my career and driven by this, you know, toxic mixture of insecurity and ambition, 
uh, I think I took my marriage and my relationship for granted. Um, I mean, looking back on it, I, what an asshole to just have this have this baby at home, have this adorable 18-month-old at home and just always be gone. Like, how did that not drive me crazy with guilt? Um, so, you know, in the end, it's, it's, it, it's a kind of self-obsession and it's, I think it is easy to take a relationship for granted um, when you've when you've when you've been blessed and have have a great partner um, to just say it's there it's there when I need it and when I'm traveling around or out with my friends it's you know it'll still be there when I come back um, so I mean I can I can speak to that experience you know because it's my own I can't speak to what lots of other men feel um, but but I do think what's been key for me is is realizing just how important that relationship was. And, and that's the clarity I talked about. It's not the clarity that I somehow uh, somehow fixed all my flaws. It's just realizing, oh my God, this, this is what matters to me. The other stuff can disappear. The other stuff has disappeared. And I'm still standing here because of this, because of this relationship. Um, so, I, I mean, that's not that I, not that I wish... <laughs> professional loss on anyone else but but for me that was the and it's the word I keep coming back to that that was the consolation that is that is what I'm grateful for learning um, that was my my education um, so you know for me it was just becoming aware of how important this relationship is um, and hopefully the science can help a little bit with that too because um, I think the science is not that you can convince a mediocre partner to become a better partner by citing off some correlations from the Harvard grant study or talking about attachment theory. I'm not sure that would work. But certainly the science is very convincing when you look at what matters most to people in life. It's not fame and fortune. It's do I have a great partner? Do I have great friends? Do I love my children? And so forth. Um, so I think the science, the science agrees that, that this is what matters most. This is what gives us meaning. This is what lasts. And this is something that's always worth pursuing because I think that's the thing that I see the most. And again, it, it has it has it's very much filtered through my position. Uh, is that <clears throat> is that people have been have made so many mistakes, been burned so many times. Don't trust the opposite sex. Don't trust their own judgment. Uh, and it's just as easy to say, you know what, I'm done. I you know if I don't date again, I can't get hurt again. I can't sink two years, five years into a relationship that goes south um, and you're basically making a decision at age 40 that that's going to last for 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 year for perhaps the rest of your life i have a client whose husband left her at age 35 she didn't date for the next 35 years no that's sad i mean um yeah i mean that's that's the thing why I begin the book by talking about habituation, which is an admittedly strange place for a book about love to begin, because there really is no alternative. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to seek happiness in, in cars and shoes and material objects, in bigger houses and faster cars. It's just, that's a, that's a hedonic treadmill that, that never leaves us satisfied. We just go faster and faster and faster and rack up bigger credit card bills, but we never end up in a better place. Um, so, so I begin the book with habituation because really, I mean, there's no alternative. 
love is the consolation for the fact that we're going to die. Um, we know we're going to die. Uh, we're only here for a little bit. And, and our consolation, what lets us cope with that awful, awful fact, is the sense that we can build relationships with, with people that go on and on. Um, let's, bring this, let's bring this back to you, because I think there's a parallel between you and some of our listeners uh, where it's, a, it's almost a, a willful blindness about the finite nature of time. Uh, we have a limited amount of time, energy, resources for everything during our waking hours. So we say, well, here's the one thing I'm good at. Here's the one thing I can control for you. You know, you, you, you come out of college, you're, you're, write, you're writing books, you're, 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 uh, you're a superstar. And that's, again, it's not selfish to, to say, hey, this is, this, is my, this, is my, this is my gig. I'm in a really unique position. I'm going to say yes to these jobs. I'm going to say yes to these speaking appearances. Uh, you know, again, we talked about that briefly. And it's not even a matter that you shouldn't believe your own bullshit. It's that suddenly you're spending 30 weeks a year on the road or 65 hours a week working. And the, the very finite nature of it means you're, you have to be neglecting your wife and your children. There's no way to be a good husband and father when you're on the road 30 weeks a year or working 60 hours a week. Absolutely. And I think one of the most dangerous myths about love is that the love takes care of itself. That once you fall in love, you know, you're done. The hard work is over. Now you can kind of coast. And I think what you see when you look at successful relationships is the work never stops. And there is no shortcut. Um, the passion doesn't last because it never goes out. The passion lasts because it keeps getting relit. Um, and, and I think that's, that's what I didn't know. And if I could go back in time and and yell at my younger self I mean I yell a lot and I talk about a lot of things but I think w one of the most important truths I would try to impart to my foolish younger self is don't take this relationship for granted keep working uh, this this is what matters most in your life and, and you're just you're not giving enough attention you're not putting in enough work you're not taking care of this woman you love could give, um, could give you a hypothetical go for it if you didn't have a wife and kids, right? If you don't have a wife and kids and your life falls apart and you got to put it back together, don't you go right back to where you were? Don't you go back to doing what you know, working hard? Because again, I'm trying to parallel this with all the smart, strong, successful women who turn to me and say, but no, you don't understand. Working is more rewarding than dating. Love has never rewarded me consistently over time. But if I work 60 hours a week, I'm going to make partner and I'm going to get that trip to St. Bart's and I'm going to be able to take a week in Bali for a yoga retreat. And like there's a there's a sort of direct linear thing where you double down on the thing that you feel like you can control when in dating and relationships, you're only 50% of the equation. You can't control that person you're with. So if you don't have a wife, and or your wife leaves you do you do you say i'm going to get right back on the horse and and find me some love or am i going to throw myself headlong into my work i think that's a, that's a that's not a clear-cut decision no no and i and i certainly can't judge someone else's life choices um 
a trip to a trip to Bali sounds pretty nice. Um, I can I can only speak to you know my own choices and uh, and I mean if I hadn't been married and didn't have kids, that's the hypothetical. And I lost my job. Um, what would I have done? Oh God, I, you know if that's it's an imp- I mean it's an impossible hypothetical. Sure for me to entertain just because looking back on it, I don't know what I would have been at that point. I, I was so, you know, I, I felt so devastated that I don't know what would have kept me together. I don't know what would have kept me going. I, I would have been in a, I mean, not that I wasn't in a dark place, but I would have been in a uh, very difficult to imagine place. Um, so, you know, certainly, in a strange way, I can relate to to some of those choices you described because I think my my professional fall also helped me better understand what I loved about my work and why I wanted to keep writing. Um, there were many days where I thought, many months, many years, where I thought I would never write again, um, and and you know then I realized, oh, I actually love love this thing called writing. I love the act of thinking through words and wrestling with complicated mysteries and. And you know, and, and a book about love, as difficult as it was for me to write, was tremendously meaningful. And I feel like I learned a lot from it, and helped me become a better husband and father. Um, so, so I think you know, there there are ways I, I I tried to correct my own career mistakes, even as I tried to pick up the pieces. Um, but uh, I mean, it's a good question. You know, I, I mean, I guess. I can only, like I and I keep saying this, I can only speak to my own experience, which is that for me, uh, I couldn't imagine going forward without this, without these people, you know, all around me, um, that the people I love and love me back. Um, if, this we're nearing an hour, if you could give, and again, I know that's not your area of expertise, but the, one of the wonderful things about talking about love is that everybody's, a, you know, everybody's an expert. Um, everybody has an opinion. Everybody has their own life experience. So if, if, if you, an author of this book, and the guy has been married for, you know, or been with the same woman for 16 years, if you could give advice to this audience of smart, strong, successful women who certainly on paper have everything but the guy, what would you tell them? Oh, I mean, I can only give advice if I imagine giving it to myself. Um, and, and I think the advice is, is distilled from, from the science and, and from my own experience, which is that love is hard work. Uh, love is the hardest work there is. Uh, it's infuriating, it's difficult. Other people are infuriating. Um, even the people we love are maybe they're the most infuriating. Um, but but when you look back on it, um, love love is what makes us happy. Love is what makes us successful. Um, love love is what lets us live a little bit longer. Um, so so you can look to the science for the correlations for the scientific evidence that love is really important, or you can just feel it for yourself. Um, love has you know and this is just my own personal experience love has let me go on um, 
I can't imagine existing without it. Um, and uh, and that doesn't make it easy. That that doesn't mean it takes care of itself. Um, but but goddamn, it's really what life is all about. I love it. Um, I wanna I wanna ask a question because there's one thing that you've said over and over. Uh, and it might just be language. It might just be a certain frame. You talk about love being work. And I, I try to teach women uh, the opposite. And again, it, I want to tread lightly because I, I respect you and I'm not trying to contradict you. I try to tell women that relationships fundamentally should feel easy. Um, and it's the difference between work and effort. Love takes effort like you know, hey, I've got a garden. I got to keep watering it or it'll die. You can't neglect your garden. But you shouldn't have to uh, try to grow a garden in the desert, right? When something feels like work, it's, yeah. it's drudgery. It's oppressive. And it's such a popular thing for people to say. Again, you're one of my literary idols. And you're saying something that fundamentally undercuts something that I, that I believe, which is that relationships take work is it possible that we could we could agree that relationships take effort but work might be the wrong word because no one wants to do work when your job feels like work it's no fun sure i i think our disagreement is more semantics than substance um i mean i think here of a story that john gottman tells about um he was reading a mystery novel and was nearing the end and was lying in bed and getting kind of sleepy but he really wanted to finish this novel but then he watched his wife walk to the bathroom and he watched her look in the mirror and he could see that she was worried about something. And, and he frames it as this choice, you know. What he wanted to do was to keep reading his mystery novel to, to solve it, to, to figure out the whodunit, and then to go to bed. But he saw that his partner, his life partner, was worried about something. So he made the choice to go and ask her and they had a long discussion and they stayed up late and he didn't get to finish his novel that night. Um, so when I think about, when I use the word work, it's about, you know, making the attachment last, making the love last. It, it boils down to a series of choices, some of them conscious, some of them less conscious, about uh, this person needs me right now. They helped me and now I'm going to help them. I can see they're worried. I can see they're anxious. I can see they just want to share this feeling. I want to be there for them. Um, and you can call that effort. I call it work. Um, Gottman calls it bids, right? You turn to bids, someone. Bids for, yeah, bids for attention. Yeah. Um, I think in that story, he, he, he does describe it as, you know, it's not something he necessarily wanted to do in the moment, but you have to be open to those bids and, and, and that's what makes them open for your bids. Um, but, but love is a series of those interactions. Um, and what's truly amazing is that it becomes so much more than the sum of its parts. That that you take all those small choices, you know, those 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 bids for empathy and the return, those little kisses, those little touches, the the turning towards someone, just the touching someone's hand. I mean, all those minor, minor moments that they somehow add up into this relationship that shapes your life, that that gives you meaning, um, that you know everything from dramatically lowers your risk of cardiovascular disease and alcoholism and mental illness, um, increases your income at work if you look at these correlations, but, but I think in the most important fundamental way, just gives your life a shape and a meaning 
and and we are wired to seek out meaning um, and you know what that often means is we're wired to seek out love I um I want to thank you um, you did a you, you did a great job uh, not that you're being scored on this but I I, I love the way uh, you handle questions and how uh, I could hear the the wheels spinning in the background how you're processing these questions um, and really engaging with them. Uh, this was this was Thank you for asking. this was no, no, this no, was no. a lot of fun. I, I, thanks so much for asking questions and made my wheels spin. I apologize for some long long winded answers, uh, but uh, but no, it's it's a great great subject. I could talk about love all day. I just saw yesterday. Don't know if you've seen it. Uh, there was a. A twenty-minute Elaine de Baton video. Did you see this? I have not seen it. No. Uh, I'll 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 email it to you, and I'm gonna be I'm posting it on the blog. So if anybody's listening uh, and wants to know what I'm talking about, I'll be, I'll be blogging about it. But it was uh, it was just a twenty-minute video that humorously summarizes a lot of the same talking points we're arriving at. Uh, it's it's he doesn't get into the science. It's it's kind of uh, surfacy, but he arrives at all the same conclusions uh, about habituation and Romeo and Juliet, and uh, and you know essentially we're all uh, you know d- damaged people with with problems who are very attuned to criticizing other people and hoping that we're yeah. forgiven for our problems, but we don't want to settle. And it's it's uh, yes. it's 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 well, a love would, it's a it's a, love it's a good use of nineteen minutes and fifty three seconds. I look forward to watching that. But love would be so much easier if we weren't all damaged and if we weren't all different. But the fact is, there is no missing half waiting for us, and we're all a little bit broken. Um, and uh, and and that's you know that's what makes love hard. It makes it interesting, and it makes it so necessary. It's also what makes yeah, it makes it's what makes it worthwhile. Um, for for me, the the missing piece was I needed someone who who put up with me and fundamentally accepted me for who I was and I dated an inordinate amount of people who on on their own merits are, are impressive and are you know probably making someone else very happy but all of them said you know Evan I love you but you have to change this 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 and this <laughs> and uh, I just wanted acceptance I, I didn't I, you know I, I don't expect anybody who's with me to think I'm perfect but there was way too much harping on what was wrong with me and it just didn't feel good on a day-to-day basis because I wasn't hiring a, a you know a consultant, uh, even if all the cons- the constructive criticisms were were, were valid, and I, I presume they were, it just became tiring to not be accepted within my own relationship. So that was that was a big aha for me ten years ago. Uh, my my wife's you know again, it, and it's not faint praise. Her single greatest quality is that she really accepts people for who they are and doesn't try to change them. No, that's an amazing quality. Um, I mean. I think when I look back on my own struggles and failures, and there have been so many, I, I um, there's a wonderful quote by a Sufi mystic that has meant a lot to me these last few years, and it's, God breaks the heart again and again and again until it stays open. Um, so I think that's one way of thinking about all the heartbreaks of the past. They were a necessary precondition for giving us a heart that stays open. All right. Well, on that, um, I want to I want to thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll engage you offline. We'll go out to dinner or something like that. Um, uh, and I want to thank everybody who joined us uh, today on the Love You podcast. My name is uh, Evan Mark Katz. Next week, uh, I am going to be back with 
What are we talking about next week? Why do men not want to understand women? Uh, I, it's, I, I just have a few thoughts on that, and I, it might be a little bit of a rant. It'll be short, but it's something that I'm, I'm very curious about. Women come to me because they want to understand men, and I don't know that men do the same. I want to sort of explore why. So please, uh, subscribe on iTunes, follow me on Facebook and Twitter, and I give away tons of free dating and relationship advice on www.evanmarkkatz.com. Go to the website, take my quiz on the number one relationship challenge you're facing, and I'll help you get the love that you deserve. I'll see you again next week on the Love You Podcast. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm.